0: Welcome to False Bottom Girls, a podcast about the wonderful yet sometimes confusing world of beer and brewing. Hi, I'm
1: Rachel Hudson, owner of Pilot Brewing and an Advanced
0: Cicero. Hi, I'm Jen Blair, sensory expert, home brewer, and Advanced Cicero. I'm,
1: I'm milling it. it. <laughs> <laughs> That's better, milling it, because it sounds like filling it. Oh, yeah. I'm milling it actually i get a lot and of my malt pre-milled so i'm not really milling it
0: everybody has just taken their headphones out and discussed and they're just like fuck you two now that song is going to be in my head all day Ha <laughs> ha! be like well welcome to my world because by the time you hear this that song will have been in my head the entire time
1: don't worry i'm sure by the time <laughs> this episode is over we will have talked about 50 different random things that don't have anything to do with milling That's true. and possibly more songs so That's excellent. (laughs) And I will start with number
0: one here is I have chronic insomnia, right? I I don't sleep through the night, I wake up in the middle of the night. Um, So my therapist has suggested that I keep a notebook by the bed to write down what like what I wake up thinking about uh, to see if that helps me go back to bed. But then what I like, and I've explained this to different people where it's like, no, I just wake up and I have like two different songs playing on a loop in my head and then I'm just like thinking about like I need to go to the grocery store or something like I don't wake up usually worried like, about, something. Out about yeah. something right <laughs> um so the other day I was like okay I'll write it down and it was the song Unholy by Sam Smith and Kim I forgot her last name um but it's that song but it's the specific line where she says like buy me mew mew like Rihanna and so in my, like on my notebook, when I woke up the next day, I would written down unholy and then I'd written down Mew me like Rihanna and was just like, there you go. There's, this is, uh, yeah. It's not you just like, figure it
1: out. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs>
0: like, I'm writing down like, why didn't my parents love me or something like that? It's like, no, I've just I just sing this song on a loop in my head. And that's what wakes me up.
1: I'm so glad I don't have to do that because, <laughs> oh my God, my dreams are so intense I remember everything, and they're weird. Mm-hmm. I'm always really stressed out about getting to the beach. <laughs> 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 but it's like everyone around me. I got to get them too. We all got to get our stuff. We got to get the car. We got to get there, and then like we get there, but we don't. We're not outside of the condo. We got to get to the beach. <laughs> it doesn't happen.
0: So annoying. I love that. Mine is a uh, malfunctioning elevators
1: like enough so that oh. I get freaked out on elevators now. So I should that probably talk to you. Actually my real that. life actually right now, because one, one of our elevators have been down for like a month. I live in a 10 store, like there's 16 stories. We live There's a condo and there's two elevators. Like it once been down for a month, the other night, the other one went down. So there was no elevator. Jeff had to walk the dogs down the stairs and back up. And then Then they fixed it. It was like, it's working now. But the other one, the one that's down, the uh, like right before it was down, we were in our condo and like the hallway is not, it's like right there. So we could hear it. And the elevator goes, it just shakes and shakes and shakes. It like doesn't fall, but like you could just hear it. Like someone's calling it and she's like, and I was like, so your dreams are my real life.
0: I'm taking the stairs every time I'm ah, now. Seriously, I'll be like, I will see you all in a few minutes. You can go without me. <laughs> yeah, so. so we're here to talk about milling and mashing, <laughs> if you can tell. And if you're keeping track at home, I think that's what, like three three of the 50 things Yeah, so far.
1: Please stick with us. Yeah, we'll get there.
0: <laughs> um, we're both a little caffeinated Yeah, this morning. We and- just did an
1: episode on Malt 101. Right. That's right. So I'm all like I'm all hyped up. Yeah. We're ready to go. About malt because it's my favorite thing to talk about. Hopefully you caught that two weeks ago. And then we're gonna talk about a little bit more about malt. Yeah. And what we do with it. That's right. We are going
0: through milling and mashing today. So we've left the malt house and now we're getting to the brewery. That's right. uh, with our our freshly made malt. And this was actually the presentation that we did at Homebrew in Pittsburgh this year um, on milling and mashing. And one last of the things, year, sorry, 2022. Yes, last year. this year we will be talking about carbonation
1: yeah. in beer.
0: And I think we, when Rachel and I were talking about what kind of topic to submit this year, so this is number four, diversion. Um <laughs> You know, I was like, you know, I've been thinking a lot about carbonation because like I've I've never really dove into like gas laws. And those are questions that I've gotten mixed up on on the master that is like I like we talked about. I need to go back to the basics and I need to learn how this works because I think I know. But then when I have to explain it, I do not know. And that's kind of what the milling and mashing was is, uh, you know, I get frustrated. And I talked about this in the last episode when people will use craft malt and expect to be able to use it the same way they use their commodity malt. And like milling is one of those big steps where that you may have to adjust how your milling process works to accommodate that, to get the best extract that you're looking for. And then with mashing, it's one of those, I think it's more, it's definitely more of an advanced technique for home brewers um, and probably for a lot of brewers too is, you know, specifically adjusting your mashing regimen for what it is you're trying to accomplish you know Mm -hmm. you can put everything in at you know 154 and we'll talk about the enzyme windows in a little bit but like that's going to be good good enough but if you have like a specific goal in mind Mm
1: -hmm.
0: a lot of people i think overlook that you can adjust your mash regimen to help you get to that goal Uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit more but that's you know when we were thinking about what would be a good topic it's like well, there's no, there's no Zymergy articles, there's no past presentations about milling, and there actually weren't any about mashing either, which I yeah. was shocked to find out because I was like, oh, well, we'll talk mostly about milling and a little bit about a bit about mashing because I bet that there's all, like all sorts of mashing presentations and articles, and there's really not. Um, there's some like very specific, you know, like turbid mashing. Um, and we did already last year, I think it was last year, we have done an episode previously on the different kinds of mashes you can do. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about those in this episode a little bit, but if you want more in depth, go back and listen to that episode where we talked about all the different mashing regimens. Um, So like we said in the last episode, just about malt 101, as we were looking through our episodes, it's like, well, we've never actually just gone back to the basics and explained why this is important and why you do this, and why it matters. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's a very long prologue into this presentation that we gave earlier this year on milling and mashing. So with that being said, Rachel, would you like to kick us off by talking about milling? Yes. I'm sure I'll interrupt you multiple times like I do. No, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. With weird stories.
1: Yeah. Uh, So milling is going to be like the physical act of crushing the malt kernels that we're receiving from the barley house or malt house so we we get the kernels in a bag in a kernel form if you will but in order to expose the endosperm that we need for mashing we uh need to mill it so we're crushing the malt except we're crushing it into smaller particles in preparation for mash and watering um and how do we do this we do this with rollers um uh, if you really you know Needed to you could get some sort of what's that thing where you crush the spices or you make oh, like mortar,
0: mortar and pestle
1: yeah get one of those if you needed to like you could technically do it but essentially you're you're milling the grain you're crushing it um and you know at, at a homebrew skill you you can buy mills that are like a two roller or a three roller mill um, a very typical one to get is a two roller. And so you imagine like like two rolls of a grinders kind of sitting next to each other, hooked up to a, um, what's called a drill using to spin these around to crush your grain. Mm -hmm. And Uh these are dry mills that we're talking about. Dry mills. Yeah. There's dry mills. There
0: are wet mills. A wet mill would be something like Bell's uses a wet mill, which is where you're essentially making, putting in your mash water and your grain is going through the same tube. So once it gets to your mash tonne, you don't add
1: water. You've already added Oh, the I didn't wet... realize that. Yeah. I thought yeah. it was like a spraying of water as you're, okay. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah. So
0: it can, that's also why it can be called a steep mill, that makes which sense. is where you're adding you're your mash water. Yeah. yeah. You're adding it at the same time and it just goes like through the tube with the water. So it hits your mash ton already as your mash. Yeah. It's a than, very like grain
1: very large production brewery thing to do yes like very large. like a left hand we did not do that and they're very large so i mean right. it it's, depends on where right But like, but yeah like
0: bells is the yeah. one i know of that has something like that yeah. And they're, they're very large that'd be cool
1: to see i've been there but i don't remember seeing it.
0: yeah and but, yeah then the other one is hammer mills and i want to say here's me interrupting again with a story that rachel made a very funny joke at homebrew con and i'll let you make it here but nobody laughed except for me i don't think it was that funny i thought I
1: it was i thought i don't it was think funny. it was a joke i was just reading well, what the internet told me it wasn't a
0: joke but just the, tell us about hammer mills and say what you said and i'll laugh again
1: <laughs> i don't remember it was like a hammer mill was like this I, I, I can't remember it's like a really large roller and it has a bunch of little tiny hammers that it uses to crush right. To crush See, the girl. hilarious. I don't know. It's something little... like
0: they call it a hammer mill because there's just a bunch of little bitty hammers inside hammering the which is not what it is. Whoa. It's, that's not what it is. But it that's I what think the internet said. so funny. <laughs> no, that was like it was so funny. A hammer mill is going to be what you use if you have a mash filter. And that's going to look really more kind of to me, it's like a big like gear. And what you're doing with yeah. the hammer mill is like you are hammering the malt into a powder because that's going to go into your that's, mash filter. That's
1: right. You need. We need to point out that this is a very like a hammer mill is used for a very very fine malt grind that you would not typically use on a regular brewing system. But you're using this on a mash filter, like Jen said. So mm-hmm. like the like imagine a big accordion pressing the mash, just right. all of it, and squeezing squeezing out. Um, Everything it can, it's so right. it's not relying on the husk of the grain to act as a filter agent or transfer agent. Right. So basically, that's another point with mills. When we're milling, um, you know, we'll talk about how milling affects the beer. The barley husk plays this important role that we know, and so you have to have the proper crush, and that crush comes from an adjustment that you need to make on how close those rollers are together, and that and your can mills are change. adjustable. They're adjustable on the big scale, on a small scale that can change. I have worked at plenty of places where we've had to go and adjust the mill because mm-hmm. we were going to now throw in the dark grain and the dark grain was a little bit smaller of a kernel due, due to its process of becoming dark, whether it's right. resting or whatever. And it, that really affected our lauder in the long run is because we were getting a better lauder because we were making sure to crush it. Not so finely. And um because what was happening was getting really crushed and it was just compacting right um and so there's a balance between two you know these two things it's like maximizing extract and getting your practical workflow right because you want to get obviously the more you crush a grain the more extract you're going to get but you're not going to be able to water right Um, yeah
0: it's definitely what and we've talked about this like with water and with other things that it's you kind of pick one thing, but you're not going to win all the time. Like yeah. it can be two steps forward and one step back because that helps
1: you reach your goal. Well, we have our coarse grind and we have our fine grind. Grind. Mm-hmm. So if you hear those words, that's what I'm talking about when we say larger and smaller, smaller particles. Yes, Just and, and we'll talk. There.
0: Yeah, that's that's good. And like I said in the last episode, we'll do an episode on malt certificates of analysis where we talk more about like what does that mean.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: But speaking of the, I actually have, here we go. Like, this is like nine and nine and 10. Number 17. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> which this is actually related, but a brewery I worked at. One of the beers, one like one of the core beers, the, they weren't hitting their OG, like the gravity was off and, you know, everybody's like, well, did we change mall? Blah, 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 blah. And what it ended up being was that the mill needed to be recalibrated. Mm-hmm. And so when you're, you know, you're running stuff through every day, you still have to go back and check to make sure that that is actually what, you know, this doing what you want, because we're talking about a difference of like milliliter or milliliter. Oh
1: yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's a big difference overall. It is a
0: huge difference. But that yeah. was like one of those things where, you know, everybody's thinking like, what is the most complex thing? What's going on with this? Let's look at yeah. the COA. Let's do all this. And finally, somebody was like, when was the last time you calibrated the mill?
1: Yeah, and exactly. We, you know,
0: we had a set of sieves that we were able to do that. And then it was like, oh, yeah, that is the problem. It's just over time it got moved apart. Mm-hmm. So we weren't getting the proper crush that we wanted. Yeah, And,
1: and if you're you know, exactly if you're under crushing, you're going to have a larger particles, so you're going to which is more your coarse grind. And it's going to be like a faster lauder, but you don't have as much surface area exposed. Right. So to get all the enzymes that you need. So you get less extract and lower efficiency. Right. And then if you're over crushing, you'll have maybe great extract, but all the husk will be pulverized and it will lead to cement like mash. It'll be hard to water. You'll get lots of polyphenols from the grains um, that will lead to a stringency in your finished beer. So it's really important to pay attention to what you're milling. Um, and if you're like me, who gets a lot of my base malt pre-milled and you can go to the homebrew store and like some of them will pre-mill your malt too, like that's something that needs to be paid attention to on their part and that you need to communicate with them as well. So like right. I have gotten bags of um, a couple bags before that were not crushed enough. And I had to go back and like remill it because we're like, well, re- we'll mill our specialty, but just not our our base. And I was like, oh, this is annoying. Right. I asked and, you to yeah. mill it for
0: a reason. <laughs> and that is a good point. That was the other thing I was going to bring up is I remember my homebrew store. It was kind of a similar story. Like in our homebrew club, people were saying, like, hey, my my this is a recipe I brew all the time. I didn't change anything, but my extract is so much lower. And it's because they were pre-milling or they were milling their grain at the homebrew store. And it was the same thing where it was like, yeah. when was the last time that this was calibrated? And yeah. also people will run everything through there. So, you know, you'll you'll run your base malt and your specialty malt and your roasted malt, this is a homebrew store. So everybody's yeah. showing up and milling these exactly. things but different grains have different needs and not all the time, but like you can, you know, there's kind of, it's kind of like having your mash temperature at like 154. like you can put it in a setting where it's going to be good enough for anything that you're going to mill. But that was the problem was that it was just severely like out of whack. And once Mm -hmm. they recalibrated it, then it, you know, everybody, like their beers were back to normal. Um, And we'll talk about this in a little bit about milling. um, If, Like the one thing that I recommend to people, like what equipment should I get for home brewing is if you're doing all grain brewing, buy yourself a mill. Mm -hmm. That's that's like the the top thing that I tell people is invest in a mill so you can mill your own grains on your own time. Because like Rachel, you all have a a storage unit Mm -hmm. that is like climate controlled that you don't need to Mm -hmm. worry about. Um, But a lot of times what people will do, and I know I've been guilty of this, that's how I know not to do it is getting something pre-milled or like milling at the homebrew store. And then it's just like sitting in, you know, like, yeah, in, in my a warm
1: area, get exposed to moisture. Yeah.
0: And it's going to get yeah. exposed to moisture and it's going to go slack, which is stale. It's going to go slack a lot faster. Um,
1: So that's, you know, and you keep it in your I... like freezer, right? That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yep. if you, if you do milled or not milled, you can, freezer is a great place to keep it.
0: Yeah, because you're you're looking for a low humidity environment with a consistent mm-hmm. temperature, um, so you can yeah you can mill or some places like um, more beer. If you order milled from them, it shows up in a vacuum sealed bag. Yeah, that's good. Like there's you're, yeah you still can't keep that forever because there's still going to be oxygen ingress through the plastic. But it's better than like, if I go to my homebrew store and mill it, it's just in a big plastic bag that I just, you know, put a twist tie around.
1: Yeah. And be sure to compare your specialty kernels or even if you're using like a a local malt to compare it to what you normally look at, like at a two row barley that like a raw two row, like Mm -hmm. grab one of those and compare the other kernels because a lot of times rye is going to be smaller. Mm -hmm. I have noticed that local malt for some reason is just a tad smaller in size. So just pay attention to that because it's going to require a little bit of a change adjustment, most likely, most likely. And it's not hard to adjust
0: your mill. The like a good place to start is you should be able to fit a credit card between Mm -hmm. your rollers if you're a homebrewer or if you're using like a a two roller mill, that's a good place, like a good default place to be. And then you can adjust as needed. But generally, if you can fit a credit card in between there, like snugly fit a credit card, you're going to get a good enough crush.
1: And you like grab extra malt from the homebrew store to test your crush with. So mm-hmm. you're not relying on your your brew day malt.
0: Oh stuff. yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah.
1: Look at us with all Thank these. Thank you. Look okay. at experience, baby. That's right. Experience means a lot. Just can't go to school. You gotta get out there in you. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, let's talk about malt conditioning. Um every time I <laughs> I know you know
0: us talking about malt. I know you know what I'm thinking.
1: (laughs) We'll tell this story, but every time I say, hear malt conditioning, I just flashbacks of homebrew con from old men being like, I can't believe they're talking about it. And they said they've never done it. And I'm like, it's one freaking slide that we didn't even have in our outline that was suggested we added to our outline by the committee, which is fine. No problem. We are very. All right, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to tell you why I don't do it. because, and I will tell you why I started doing it. Yes, well, we know why. (laughs) Finally, I'm qualified to talk about this one (laughs) slide. All right, so malt conditioning. What is this? This is when we're adding a very small amount of water to our grain bill before we mill it. And we're doing this as a way to kind of like, just we're saying, hey, malt, we need you to get ready become mash and milk yeah mash. it's like you're you're we're gonna just, stretch out a little before you go for a run yeah yeah we're just gonna like you know i like to compare this to a collaboration beer not collaboration oh my god a calibration beer this is what <laughs> left hand kind of called it when we would do a century. we go into the room we get we before we do our century, they'd give us just like a couple ounces of regular beer to just tell our palate like hey palate you're gonna you're gonna start tasting some beer here man right we just want you to get ready wake up you know so this is where it's like more conditioning calibration
0: and- beers. Another interruption is one of my favorite things that I've only been like my old homebrew club in Chicago would always do a calibration beer at the beginning of a judging session. That's the only place oh, I've ever good. done it. That's but good it's good fucking idea. fantastic because yeah. everybody gets like they'll just have like somebody brings in a something beer. And, whatever. Yeah. Or yeah. like, here's my amber ale or yeah. something. And every judge table gets that same beer, and everybody tastes it and like and fills out a score start sheet out on the same palate. And yeah, and discusses it to I be like, it. okay, well, I gave this a thirty-three, and if the other person's like, I gave it a nine, and the other person's like, I gave it a
1: forty-three, then you know you need to talk.
0: Yeah, and you know, and again, calibrary. or maybe
1: that person that gave it a nine, maybe they need to be excused. Right, I'm <laughs> <just> kidding. <laughs>
0: But, you know, this it's such a great way to calibrate with your fellow judges. I yeah. wish more competition. I understand it takes extra time and extra time. Ta- yeah, yeah. But it's it's so good because then you also get the opportunity. Like if I, you know, if I say I give it a 32 and you're like, I give it a 33. It's like, cool. Then we're, yeah. we're going to be we're on not always on the same page. But if, yeah, if I say I give this a 20 and you say I give this a 45, then we need to start talking to each other right then before we start judging. Like, okay, well, why did you say it was 20? And yeah. why did you say like why did you say this was a bad beer or not a good beer and why did you say this was a great beer unless figure that out before I feel like that'd be
1: very beer. odd for you and I to be very off like that you know feel, it's
0: honestly it's it's odd for anybody a like, lot of people that's one of the things that yeah I, why I encourage people to do beer judging because it's very validating yeah to be sitting across yes. from somebody who's like yes I agree that this needs and maybe sometimes maybe your reasons are different yes. But generally but, speaking, they're not. Like if a yeah. beer has diacetyl in it, it has diacetyl in it.
1: Yeah. And I noticed that when I was judging in JBS last year, like, oh, yeah. They're like, okay. Yeah. No, I got yeah. this. Like I'm, it, I'm it, saying, We're all tasting the same things. This right. Is exactly. Yeah. It all kind of all follows <laughs>
0: kind of a bell curve. Like most things are going to be fine. Yeah. And you'll agree that they're fine for different reasons. Um, but yeah, usually the only time I've ever been like really off well a lot of times it's usually like with a brand new judge who you know who's like well this is good and it's like okay but you gave it yeah uh, 45 is this the best imperial stout you've ever tasted yeah oh no? okay then why not you know and kind of starting that process out um, but there's only been one time that i had i really liked a beer that the person i was judging with did not like and uh, he was not pleasant about it like yeah i can still remember this kid's like withering look of i am such an idiot for liking this beer and it was like <laughs> well i'm the like we don't have to agree on it but like yeah i'm also an advanced cicerone and a, like a national bjcp judge and not that you have to like kowtow to everything that i say but like and it was like a beer that was like i gave it like a 37 like it wasn't even like it wasn't going to win anything yeah but he gave it like a 20 and was just like, what are you talking about? Why would you like, this is so bad. And I was like, it's not bad. What are the faults? What yeah. are the faults specifically? Just because you don't like it doesn't mean that it's a bad beer. Exactly. Anyway.
1: That's, anyway, back to malt conditioning. <laughs> yeah. Back to malt conditioning. So why do we do it? it well, results in a more resilient grain husk. Um, it makes the husk less dry and brittle. So it will stay more intact when you go to mill it, thus helping your your transfer process, your lauder, right? Um, so polarized husks that can lead to, like I said before, astringency in beer. Um, An intact husk will create a free-flowing grain bread, less fewer stuck mar- sparges, um, less channeling. Oh, and what channeling is is kind of like when you don't have a good mixture, basically of your mul- of your mash, and dough balls can form. It will force the wort to kind of create its own little rivers, if you will, uh, channels down you know, cause it's going down. Like I, I, I'm doing this thing with my hands as I'm going <laughs> down, but like picture your beer that's in a mash, right? You have the top level. And so it's, as it's going down into the bottom and mainly as you're Vorlof-ing, it will just start to create these channels where that's where the wort and only that wort is coming and it will leave good right. fermentable sugar in these dough balls that you need. Right. So you kind know, of
0: think of like an ant farm.
1: Yes. We don't want an ant farm. Right. We want no ants to be able to get around. Right. We went to farm want, more
0: like camp we went, farm we want
1: <laughs> my god this is why our episode is so long <laughs> why <laughs> i love it but yeah so it's basically like you need uh think about like a wet pile of sand that's fluid mm-hmm. and everything just kind of comes out of it and that's why you know mold conditioning is gonna just help with the crush of your grind is it totally necessary no um it's, it's, if you don't, if you're not like set up for it, like in a big, huge scale brewery to do a large amount of malt conditioning, you're not going to do it. It's like either like a really, really large brewery does it, or gin um, has been doing it on what, like five gallon batches, maybe seven, I 10 gallon batches. Yeah. That is a lot easier of a physical test to take 15 pounds of malt, 10 pounds, mm-hmm. um, something like that to, because we're talking about, yeah, take all this malt, malt and you got to steep it i brew with like almost 200 pounds of malt in one go right i'm not gonna do that right which is why i which is why in our never mind i'm gonna get to that next we'll talk about the steps real quick of malt conditioning um you miss the surface of the grain and stir it and then you just repeat this missing and stirring until you get the calculator uh, amount of water that you need, and from what was that? That's like a two percent of the malt bill weight in water. Mm-hmm. 2%, so, yep, ten percent. Ten pounds of grain would give you about three point two ounces of unchlorinated water. It's a good right. point. And you, you have.
0: have to do you have to do the kind of this weird math because you convert, you take your you figure out what your malt bill is in pounds. And then you have to convert that to ounces and then 2% of those ounces. ounces. So like if you gotcha. have 10 pounds, that's 160 ounces. And then you take 2% of that, um, which I, the first time I tried malt conditioning, I neglected to do that. And I was like, why is it saying that I add so much water? Because you don't add that much water. That's 3.2 ounces of water in a 10-pound grain. That's bill. not that much. Yeah. That's not that much at all. Yeah. And that was something that um, I've learned. But I will say during our presentation, we both said, like, we haven't done this before, but we know people do it. And I said, hey, if you're somebody who conditions your malt, talk to me afterwards because I want to know if you find it worthwhile. Because for me, it's always been something that as a home brewer, I was just like, yeah, that's something I can do, but it's an extra step. You know, yeah. it's an extra 10 minutes. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Like, yeah. And afterwards, uh, I had a couple different guys come up and, like, they were showing me pictures of here's this malt condition yeah. without it. It's how look. I do it. Here's how yeah. I do it. And I was like, okay, like, the two of you have convinced me that this is worth my time to try. And they, like, they had different ways of, I think one guy said he puts it all in, like, kind of like a Rubbermaid bin and then adds the water and shakes it. And the other guy puts it, in like a bag or something and like rolls it um the way i've done it is uh i just have a you know just a brew bucket that i would put a- as i was measuring out my malt so i did this um with a double ipa that i brewed recently with um it was maris otter and a little bit of honey malt was what i what my formidables were going into the mash and I think that was around, it was around like 13 pounds. So I figured out what that was in terms of ounces. And I have just a spray bottle that I put distilled water into. Yeah. But I would, as I was measuring out, I would measure out like two pounds at a time and dump it in the bucket and then spray it a yeah. little bit and then kind of move it around. And then I kept doing that. And then at the end, once I had all my malt in, like I felt like I was spraying a lot, but I had a ton of water, Still, not a ton. I had like an ounce of water. Yeah. Still left, but I just kind of sprinkled that just over the going. top, put the lid on it and just shook it really well. And, you know, sat it somewhere that like as I walked by, I would pick it up and shake it a little bit more just to try yeah. to get all of that kind of moving around. Um, and it I the two beers I've traded on are not quite finished yet. Um, but in terms of my gravity and stuff, I did get I did get really good extract from that. And I could tell a difference in the the condition of the grain after I milled it so like Rachel said I had all of these very nice like moisturized husks that were still intact but then I had this really really good crush on all of the grain um, now I use brew a bag so the like the lottering thing isn't as big of a deal for me but it's still mm-hmm. a consideration <laughs> um, I can imagine if you're doing like the three-step process I can definitely see how taking the time to malt condition at the front end will save you at least that amount of time when you're watering and you'll get better extract from it. So I'm a convert. Yeah. So now I'm finally qualified to talk about it.
1: No, that was a good point about the conversion too, because if you add too much water, your, your kernel may not crush as you want it to, and it can gum up on your rollers mm-hmm. as well. So, and like the milling, um, the malt conditioning, it won't affect the crush of the grain. Right. It will only affect the condition of the husk after milling. Yes. Oh, And if you do get some stuck, you can just run some extra dry malt through to kind of clean that up. Right. Um, but yeah, so I think the last thing to touch on is um, a couple things about different terms that you hear out there when it comes to malt, like rolled versus flakes. These terms are interchangeable and it kind of just depends on the company. So they do mean the same thing. Um, adjuncts are flaked using rollers, dry or wet. Um, but one company's like flaked maize is not necessarily the same as another company's. So it's just important to know like where you're getting your your grain from. If you're getting it from the homebrew store, I mean, obviously you can ask them where it comes from. Uh, it's typically going to be one of the bigger companies, I would imagine. Right. Although you do see um, some of these guys starting to carry local malt, which is super cool. Right. But,
0: you know, going back to the, like the malt episode or the talking about what goes on in the malt house, that is also another piece of equipment that most yes. maltsters don't have. Um, but I've seen it a lot with people who make gluten-free grains because you're doing a lot more of the the flake stuff. And another important point about rolled and flaked grains is that you don't have to mill those. Those can go directly into your mash.
1: Yes. Absolutely the, yeah you just throw this skip the milling process that's a very good point um and then we have also the terms torified and micronized that you'll hear out there which mean the same thing um again, they're interchangeable it means puffed so if you ever um think of like what's that cereal like puff there's like this cereal that looks like torified wheat to me it's yeah like puffed and green. it is yeah it probably and that's just exactly is. what yeah. it is yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah I know what you're talking about it's not rice Krispies. As Somebody out there is yelling it in their yeah, car Yeah, yeah, right exactly. Now.
1: But they, yeah, so whatever they're yelling, that's what that is. Right. <laughs> and Torrified is more gen- gelatinized than flaked um, malt, but not necessarily fairly con- uh, fully converted. So some companies torified might be more converted than another company's torified. So it's not a catch-all. Um, you do need, most of the time, you need to mill these malts. Um, I think a lot of people do think that you don't need to mill mill torified and again that depends on where it's coming from so you have to figure out from the supplier but I haven't really come across one that I didn't need to and I didn't mill it one time and I noticed a huge difference yeah <laughs> um so is the adjunct is it torified and then flaked then it's probably going to be fully gel- gelatinized but again depends on the manufacturer is the adjunct only torified? Then it's not necessarily completely gelatinized, but again, depends on the manufacturer. So, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> know your malt, but when in doubt, just just mill the torrefied. Yeah, you're, we're not not you're not you're not going to ruin
0: your beer yeah. if you tor- or if you torify if you mill something that didn't need to be milled. Yeah, it's not you're not yeah. going to get anything extra out of it. But technically, you're milled
1: your flaked and your rolled oats too, if you wanted to, but you don't right. need to. But right. just to be on the safe side, I say mill your torified. Um, and then we have partially gelatinized malts, um, and you just want to use them at lower amounts, but just expect a little bit um, lower fermentable sugars. Um, or, you know, employing some methods like decoction can m- get more modification out of lower modified melts or boiling like a cereal cooker, if you wanted to, in the beginning using it, then in your mash. So, mil- um, and then I think we just, at the end of that for milling, you just want to talk about some best practices. You know, we mentioned storing everything in the low humidity environment, um, Taste your grain before before milling. That's always like I, I say that taste with your herb. grain. Say that with every brewing ingredient. Taste yeah. your water. Don't taste your yep. yeast, but taste yeah. your water. Don't taste, taste your, your hops, ge- probably, but smell uh, them. Smell them. Make sure they're not cheesy. Uh mill on brew day or close to brew day as possible. The uh malt company that I get a lot of my stuff pre-milled from, they say there's a two-month shelf life on that stuff. I give it about a month because that's what makes me feel good. Plus, I I'm using it, it's not a big deal. Uh, your mill, make sure it can be adjustable, uh, recalibrate it. The sieve system is a great way to do it. This is like a, a tray of, what do you call them? How do you explain them? Like a tray of uh vents, I want to say. Like I'm trying to explain like it's, a sieve. Yes. Is.
0: So a set of sieves is going to be
1: like perforated
0: holes. Yeah. Where it starts with like the biggest hole is on top. Then, this, then it gets progressively smaller. Yeah. And what you want is like 664ths is the, that's like means you have a good amount of plump kernels. So that's, you want to be able to shake your barley or your malt down through until you get to 664ths. 764ths is even better. Um, but that's, you do that where you just put it like in, this, in the top sieve, right? And it's got all these perforated holes. So they kind of stack. So you take your milled grain
1: because t- we're testing the, the right. crush. With right, it. So exactly. This is how it test the crush.
0: Yeah, and so you put it in these and you just kind of shake it back and forth for a couple of minutes to see what filters down through to the mm-hmm. next one. And you just continue doing that until you get to where you're not filtering anymore. And that tells you what your crush yeah. should be or where your crush is. And then you want it to be around 664ths. Yeah, so and this you, is if you're doing it and it's like, you know, like really high or really low, then you need to recalibrate your yeah.
1: Your milk. And don't feel like you have to go buy one of those to like do uh, you know, get a good crush. Like you can look at your grain. Like I right. don't have a sieve. Right. I mean, I, I don't have want one, one and I really want one. Me too. I kinda, <laughs> yeah. I kind of want one, but <laughs> I, I don't think I'd use it. I think it like sit there. Like it might be. Right, like I want it to have it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The same
0: way like I have a side pole faucet yeah. and uh, like an M slider coupler yeah exactly
1: so but they're kind of expensive you don't have one right but it's just a way that you can confirm you're adjusting your recalibration but you can also just like use your eyes right um but also when you're milling it's great to wear a mask i noticed huge i noticed a huge difference in that when i worked at bigger breweries and um when you clean your mill like you know clean it clean it often don't leave grain around but Grain dust is highly flammable, so if you do highly flammable have like a lot, like you are producing a lot around there, go ahead and grab a vacuum and vacuum them up, and don't sweep it up. Right. Um, Yes,
0: and I will say the from you know spending time in malt houses and talking to maltsters, the there were maltsters who didn't wear a mask that then developed an allergy, like a barley allergy, because you're just inhaling a lot of that dust, or a wheat allergy, and like that sucks so yeah you can all of us now have probably have at least one in 95 mask wear yeah. that like if you're Uh-oh. like Rachel said if you're in a if you're in a bigger brewery or if you're milling a lot of grain regularly then you know invest in a respirator that's made for you like I remember um talking to a maltster who had to get I think it was like a scuba one or something because he had a beard and most of the respirators weren't made for people with beards. Oh. So he had to like find one that would that's form right. that seal around. His yeah. Beard so he could still um, use that when he was malting or when he was milling. Yeah. But yeah, like I when I measure out my grain, like I've like the bag of Maris I have right now is super dusty mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. And when yeah. I go to measure it out and stuff, I just grab one of my face masks and put it on and I do the same thing when I mill. Um, and so that's it's one of those things that now most of us have a mask handy. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be, you know, good enough for like the home brewer. But I highly, highly encourage everyone to do that. And like Rachel said, the clean mills is so important because with the grain dust being really flammable, and this was something that I learned being in malt houses, you know, like they were always extremely clean because if you're always milling or you're always dealing with malt, you're getting like a lot of like dust on your walls and stuff. And one maltster said that what happens is you see a big flash and then all of that grain dust that's in the air that's on your equipment just combusts immediately. So it's not like, you know, you left something on the burner and it kind of starts to burn a little bit and you have time. It's like, no, this is instantaneous and it's highly, highly flammable. The old homebrew store I used to go to, I was showing somebody around one day and was like, okay, well, here's the mill. Um, where you can mill stuff if you need to, and like in the room where the mill was, it had never been dusted. There was grain dust everywhere, and I showed it to her, and I was like, "Do not come back here. Yeah, Don't, do not mill your grain here. Buy a mill, because this is a this is a huge fire hazard and also a yeah. huge health hazard. Yeah, and that was something that like on the way out, I was like, "Hey, you need to clean your mill room because it's like it is a huge huge hazard. And I had something similar at a brewery I worked with um the mill was like in the back near the barrels and there you know so there's like cobwebs and stuff around on the barrels and nobody ever cleaned up the dust so the mill was just caked in dust and I was like you need to be cleaning this every time you use it and because you're just you've got all of this highly combustible material floating around back here in a hot warehouse that has no temperature control And like, you're the same thing. Just there's when you're going to see a big flash and then you're the back of the brewery is going to be on fire.
1: Yep. And everybody dies and it's your fault.
0: Right. Exactly. So yes. So wear a mask, clean your mill. Those are the, those are two of the biggest safety things. If you can't tell that I'm very passionate about when it comes to brewing, like there's so many ways that you can hurt yourself in brewing. And most people know kind of like the, you know, the boil and things like that are going to hurt, but a lot of people, I think, overlook things like wearing a mask when you're milling and making sure that you don't have a lot of highly combustible dust Mm -hmm. around. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk on wearing a mask and cleaning your mill.
1: So would you like to take us away with mashing?
0: Sure. So um, like I mentioned earlier, we have an entire episode on all the different mashing regimens. So we won't, we'll I think we'll probably, what we can probably do here is just kind of list them. And if you want to learn more about any of them, know that we have an episode that goes over each one in depth. But when we're talking about mashing, we're talking about this hot water seeping process that hydrates the milled malt. And we want to hydrate that milled malt because we want to gelatinize the malt starches and we want to release the malts natural enzymes and we want to convert those malt starches into fermentable sugars. So, you know, going from like the raw barley, the maltster will start this process and then the the brewer finishes the process. So that's why, okay. you know, with like with base malt, that's going to have a large amount of starches left in it. So then the brewer can convert that into fermentable sugars. So the maltster is kind of kicking off the process and then the brewer is the one who finishes it. So your average match temperature is going to be about 150 to 155 Fahrenheit, um, but that can vary based on the desired finished product. So warmer temperatures produce a more dextrinous wort, which means you're going to have a fuller bodied beer because you have more residual sugars remaining in your beer. And a lower temperature will produce a more fermentable wort, which will result in a lighter bodied beer with a dry finish because there's less residual sugars remaining in the finished beer. And for my like my double IPA that I just brewed a few weeks ago, I deliberately mashed at like 146 because I'm trying to make a high ABV beer. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I would be adding, I added, I forgot how many pounds of dextrose that I added like at high Krausen. Um, But I wanted to make sure that I had a bunch of little bitty sugars that yeast could eat really quickly. It's also a double IPA. So I wanted to have a nice dry finish. And I deliberately said, okay, my mash temperature is going to be 146. I want to get in that beta amylase range rather than being in kind of that overlap window where you're getting you know sort of an equal amount of alpha amylase and beta amylase i specifically want a lighter bodied dry finished beer and when we're doing the mash that's typically held at mash temperature for about an hour and i think i don't have um anything official like in front of me right now but i think the general consensus is that the majority of that conversion in your mash happens in like the first 30 minutes it actually yeah. happens in like the first 10 minutes um but then you you know you leave it for a little bit longer because you'll continue to get a little bit more out but you're eventually going to reach the point where you're not going to get any more yeah. sugars out of there
1: yeah that is true you can't just mash forever and expect something different to happen eventually right. you'll get stuff that you don't want to get
0: right well okay. and, like i i also compare it to like if you've ever used boxed hair color. You put the color on and leave it on for like 30 minutes, and like you can leave it on for two hours, but your hair is not going to continue to get more of that color. Yeah, it's going to reach a limit where it's like, yeah, you leave it on for 30 minutes, and you can leave it on after that, but you're not getting any kind of increase in in like the the pigment. Um, so that's that's how mashing is, as well. And then once the mash is raised, you raise or once the mash is finished, you raise the temperature up to end all of that enzymatic. Activity. So you've decided these are the, this is the proportion of these kinds of fermentable sugars I want. I don't want any more from that. So you just raise the temperature and we'll talk about enzymology in a second, but each enzyme has a different preferred temperature range that as you raise your temperature up out of that range, you're denaturing the enzyme. And once you've denatured yeah, yeah. the enzyme, you cannot
1: renature the enzyme. No. It's, it's done. And if you do that too early on, if you like mash in at like 165 or 170 mm-hmm. or something, you then you are done. You're done. You should yeah. just start over. <laughs> right. Exactly. Don't continue. Don't right. pass go. Don't collect 200. Yeah. exactly.
0: Yeah. So when the enzyme activity has ended, that ratio of fermentable and unfermentable sugars from the mash is, is locked. Yes. It's locked in. It's not going to change. You've gotten what you've gotten out of that. And that step is known as mashing out. Now, that's not to say that you can't add something like DME or sugars or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. To you change can change that sugar. ratio. Yeah. Yeah. But your, but your
1: maltose production is done. Right.
0: Your Yes. Your fermentable sugars from your malt is set right then. And you you're not going to go back. So, with basic enzymology, it's kind of easier to look at this in a chart form, which is what we have in front of us. Um, So I will do my best to to describe what's going on. Um, And then maybe we can put like the this enzymology chart I have in like the show notes or something. Um, But for our purposes, for, you know, for most brewers, since we have home brewers and pro brewers, we have access to well modified malts now. The really the most important enzymes for us, based on the, the quality of malt we can get, are going to be the beta amylase and the alpha amylase. Um, you can also start at limit dextrinase, which has a temperature range of. And when I say temperature range, this is where it prefers to work. That's going to be between 95 and 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, it will denature at 150, so that's really not all that hot at all right like 150 degrees Yeah, it's
1: pretty normal mesh tip
0: yeah exactly and uh but once you get past that 150 you're not going to get any more limit dextrinase activity Uh, but that's going to be the will help break down the sugars left behind by amylases but it's also since it has such a low window of where it likes to work it's going to denature really quickly yeah and then you have your beta glucanase and that's going to help you break down the cell wall material so this is if you have something that's very high protein meaning it's not well modified, or if you've got something like oats or wheat, you may want to do a beta-glucanase rest to help get some of that because the beta-glucanase is going to be very, or your beta-glucans are very, very gummy. Mm -hmm. So if you do that beta-glucanase rest, which is going to be between 95 and 131 degrees Fahrenheit, that's going to help break down some of that gumminess, which is going to help with your water later on. Um, And then next we have our protein rests, and these are going to be the proteases and the peptidases, or I'm sorry, the peptidases, not pepsidases. (laughs) This is where Pepsi is made. So those are going to have, uh, your protease is going to have a preferred temperature range range of like 122 to 138, and the peptidase will have 113 to like 128. So there's a good deal of overlap. And that, and there's also a good deal of overlap with the beta-glucanase and the limit-dextrinase. Those are going to, your protease will denature around 155 degrees Fahrenheit, and your peptidase will denature around 145. But these are going to break down proteins. So again, if you have a very high protein malt or... um, you know, you've got something that's not well modified, then you might want to consider doing this because that's going to help increase your free amino nitrogen, which is something that the yeast yeah. is going to need to use later on. And I've done this before where I had a Kraft maltster, like one of their first batches, the protein ended up being kind of high. So like they weren't going to sell it to somebody, but they they were like, hey, if you want a bag of it, brew with it and, you know, let us know what you think. And so I, knowing that it was higher in protein than it should be, I just did a protein rest in, you know, yeah. as part of my mash regimen and then brewed with it as normal. And it turned out completely fine. And it not that it would have ruined the beer if I didn't do a protein rest, but that's one of the ways, you know, when you're working with your malt, that's the, that parameter is something you can adjust to be able to get the result you want with the malt that you have in front of you.
1: Yeah. And that's a good point. Like you're probably using very well modified malt. You'll you'll probably know yep. if you're not. So like yep. don't wrap your head around like yes, so many point. people who make wheat beer specifically, like is a great example. They're always like, Don't I need to do a protein rest, protein rest, protein rest? I'm like, you can, but you don't pr- you probably don't have to. My problem with doing like step mashes at with my system, my big system, is actually kind of hard because it is like a everything's in the basket, like kind of a mm-hmm. beer in a bag system, but like three barrels um so getting it like you have to heat up kind of slowly it takes a while like the one time we did do it we just kind of not did not do a good job and burnt the wort. um so if you can't do it easily you don't have to do it so like don't worry you're gonna make an okay beer still excellent Um, point most um, of what we buy is modified. i feel like we say that so many times like with different things like don't wrap your head or like don't feel like this is end-all be-all
0: Right. Well, and we even had somebody during this presentation who had just started homebrewing and yeah. at the end was like, so I need to, I need to figure out what my mash regimen is. And it's like, no, you don't, you don't, which we'd also said during the presentation, but it's like the, if you're going to your homebrew store, or if you're going to, you know, if you're ordering from BSG, you're getting malt that's ready to go as soon as you get mm. it. And like Rachel said, you we'll know if you're not. So like that one maltster said, this is too high in protein for me to sell. Do you want it to play around with? And
1: when we do our COA episode, we'll be able to, like, we'll explain like what, what is too high of protein and how you find that content and all that jazz. Right. Exactly. Again, a whole nother episode, lots of, lots to talk about there. Right.
0: Or you'll also see now, um, like you can buy chip malt or you can buy under modified malt for people who are doing, um, wild ferments, yeah, or mixed true. culture, because your, you know, your bread and things are going to break down that protein later on. Yeah. And so you want to save some of that. And we talked about that in our turbid matching, mashing. Um, in the episode we did all about the different mash regimens is you yeah. want that really proteinaceous ward, because the things you're going to put into it later, that's what they want to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. You don't, If you're, if you're buying malt in a commercial place, you don't need to worry about these rests unless you're wanting to play around with it.
1: Yeah. And then the next two rests are kind of the ones that we worry about the most. Um, Right. Oh, I will. I'll let you take back over. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No,
0: I, um, one other thing about when we're talking about when you might want to do a rest is your limit dextrinase rest is also known as the acid rest. So if you are, let's say you're brewing a Hefeweizen, then you might want to do that limit dextrinase your acid rest to draw some of that ferulic acid out of the wheat because that's going to be converted later on into four vinyl guaiacol or four vg which is that clove flavor that you get in hefeweizen so mm-hmm. that's and i know we've talked about this too with hefeweizens is like ask the brewer if they have a hefeweizen like how did you do this because that's one of the cool things about that beer is like let's say that you're not a big fan of clove flavor then you might not do an acid rest yeah and but you can actually you get more banana really flavor right in exactly. other ways.
1: So right, it is. yeah, yeah. Do we haven't so done an episode on wheat beer. We should. We have. We have. Okay. I think I
0: do remember us talking specifically about. I know we've talked. Yeah. And doing like the acid rest to get more clove, or not doing it to
1: not have as much clove. It's actually a big conversation we're having tomorrow for off flavor class because we're doing isoloma acetate and 4VG.
0: Oh, nice. <gasps> You're gonna make a little half in your mouth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So the the last two, the beta amylase and the alpha amylase. This is if you're going to be concerned about something. Yeah. This is what you're going to. These are really the parameters. This is where you're going you start to listening. The most. Yeah. <laughs> so with beta amylase, that temperature range is around one thirty to one fifty. It's going to denature around one sixty, but that's going to help break down. Starch change linearly into maltose. Alpha amylase is going to be 150 to 160 is that is the preferred range for that. And that's going to cut larger starches randomly. So the way that I've always thought and actually, I know in our enzyme episode, Emily Wong did an excellent job of talking about like, here's a hot dog eating contest versus like somebody who just takes little bites. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, alpha amylase just kind of comes in like a cleaver and just starts chopping things up. And then beta amylase will start at the ends and work their way in, but they can't get to like, when they get to a branched enzyme, that's not what they do. Yeah. Uh, So they'll stop there. And I remember when I was learning about this in the advanced malting class, uh, the teacher who was teaching it described it as like beta, beta amylase gets to a certain point on those starch chains where then it can't do what's left that needs to be done and says, well, I guess I don't work here anymore because <laughs> <laughs> there's no work left for me to do. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's how I always remember
1: It's like beta Emily is like, well, I guess I don't have this job yep, anymore. Done. And I want to point out that these conversions don't just happen in an instant. Like it takes yes. some time. It takes a few minutes, you know, whatever. Like you can't, you're not just like boom, one thirty, boom, one forty, boom, one fifty. <laughs> like, right, right. For each you one you can give so 10 to 15 minutes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If you're if you're doing a step mash, you want to do 10 to 15 minutes. But for most people, like that, you know, 150, 154 range is going to be a fairly good overlap of your beta amylase and alpha amylase to give you a good balance. Like Neither one is working in its preferred temperature range where it's going to be doing the best, but they both work just fine in there. And then you can adjust your mash temp up or down. Uh, Like when I brew my barley wine, I have a higher mash temp because I want a lot of residual sugar in there. I want that body. I want that sweetness. When I'm brewing the double IPA, I I do just a beta amylase mash window because I want a lot of fermentable sugars to help dry out the beer and raise the ABV.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I worked with a brewer once who has his own brewery now, who's a very talented brewer. And he made a comment one. He's like, I don't believe in mash temperatures. I don't think they matter. And yes, I get your point. No, they matter. But yes, I get your point. <laughs> right. <laughs> like,
0: you're still going to make very good beer. Yes. If you get raw Chi from your homebrew store or from your supplier and mash at 150, one, you're going yeah. to get a perfectly good beer if, and you know you maybe 154 like, yeah right I'm and I'm not the kind of person who like I'm not going to brew my double IPA with a beta amylase mash reg- regimen and then try to brew it with you know at 154 to see if I can taste the difference like no I'm no I'm, I'm not going to do you can no
1: you probably but it yeah is,
0: it is important but it's more of like than like we've talked about I think with like the water episode it's going to be more of an incremental difference if you've got problems with your fermentation or your boil or whatever you're not going to make a yeah. good beer
1: and typically most systems i mean nothing's perfect right so typically you're going up between like 148 and 152 anyways you know whatever you're doing and it's all good it's all good right it all yeah it Have all, your goal, it's all gonna work out stay within a couple degrees of your goal you'll be fine right
0: exactly so rachel do you want to talk a little bit about checking ph Oh yeah, sure. Extremely abbreviated. Well, we did a whole episode on pH. So you can also go back and listen to that if you want to know more.
1: But, you know, we are talking about these different uh, enzymes and their temperature range. They also have a pH range where they work in ideal range. Now, in my experience, in my lifetime of brewing, I've always found a pH range anywhere between 5.2 to 5.4. 5 5.6 5. is going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And this is the pH of your mash, right? Not the pH of your water, pH of your mash. Um after your mash has been going for at least 20 minutes, I should clarify, don't just like start get a pH right away. Like give it some time to do its thing. Um and this is just going to let us know you know if we're basically with where we need to be. Now, I've seen pH is a little bit lower with dark grain. Dark grain is going to lower your pH and we're talking about like 5 versus, and this is mashed, your pH will drop as you boil mm-hmm. water, boil, and then, you know, drop down a temperature. Like if you were to check your pH throughout your thing. Now I would say, if you want to start checking your pH, just worry about a mashed pH, just make sure that you're in with between 5.2, 5.4, 5.6, something like that. Um, and you can do this really easily. You can buy pH strips that you would like get for a pool and just get a filter sample of wort and dip it in there. You can buy a pretty inexpensive pH meter online if you wanted to, maybe spend like 50 bucks. You could buy a very expensive pH meter if you wanted to. Um, And the strips are, you know, they're less expensive. They're easy to take care of. They're easy to use. The probes can be a little bit more expensive. You do need to calibrate it before. And you're not like working at a brewery. Well, if you're home brewery, you're not like doing this every day. So you do want to calibrate it before you're using it, which is not a big deal, but requires a couple extra solutions and a couple extra steps. Um, requires a little bit more care because you do need to keep like the probe in distilled water right. when you're not using it, stuff like that. I do
0: not have a pH meter anymore because it was like having a pet. Yeah. Like, like it's kind of like having like a pet fish. Like you it's not care of your stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like, you and if have you, to, like, if you're brewing yeah.
0: like twice a month, it's just like, I don't want to continue to make sure that the pH probe has the kind of water it needs.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. But you Don't have to check pH either. If you're just keep your everything within, you know, the right, you know, a lot of it comes down to the type of water you're using. Mm -hmm. If you are using well water, there are some steps you are going to need to take to that water. So it keeps your malt within a normal pH. Um, There's salts you can add to water to help with pH uh, regulation. But it's important to have the right pH because it affects the quality of your beer in the end. You know, the body of your beer, the fermentability of your beer. Um, But most of the time, modified malt is going to give you the required pH you need. So it's okay. Like don't don't freak out about it. You don't have to. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, I I think that pH is well. I, I know some people who are like. If you're paying this much attention to your water and all of this, then you should also be paying attention to your pH. I make fine beer without worrying about pH because, yeah, I just trust the process. That I, mean, it's I going can to be taste fine. the water
1: and tell if it tastes like shit. Right. I, right not, exactly. Like, yeah, I could go get distilled water if I needed to. Like Charlotte City, Charlotte, we're really lucky. It's very soft. We uh, chlorine filter it, add some minerals back in. I should specify going back to the basics, pH does mean potential hydrogen. When we're talking about pH, we're talking about how acidic or basic the beer is. Um, pH goes on a scale from one to 14, where seven is neutral, not acidic. Um, breer finishes typically about 4.6 pH. A sour kettle sour might finish like 3.3, something like that, 3.5, just to give you a little idea. Um, I remember one time at a brewery, the brewer went to go drain the cold liquor tank and clean it, which just doesn't need to be done all the time, but every once in a while you should. And didn't and acid it and didn't rinse it well enough and filled it back up. Oh, and no. I, like we all filled our water bottles from it. <laughs> so like, I remember that morning going to fill my water bottle and be like, "Oh God, like what the fuck!" And took like a sample, like a pH sample, and it was like three point something, like a sour beer, and I was like. <laughs> Stop please. Stop <laughs> We need to dump this tank. Like, and I don't like this. Is the first time I've ever tried acid water. So i was not yeah. exactly sure Like, what was just like waiting around to see if like what's going to happen to my mouth. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was fine though. I was fine. Yeah.
0: Uh, and I will say, I did a couple of weeks ago, I did a cold water extraction for my Irish stout that I yeah, used cool. 9, 9.5 alkaline water for. Um, so what I was doing when, since that wasn't getting added to the boil, my recipe was like maris and and uh, flaked barley. So that was the only thing. So I had a very mm-hmm. weird looking Beersmith recipe where it's like Irish stout <laughs> yeah. and then it's like three SRM. Yeah. But since I knew that the, between the alkaline water and the very acidic, so roasted barley is very acidic and that's helps, you know, you can add roasted barley, if it makes sense, you can add it to your beer to lower the pH. So that's also why acidulated malt exists. But I was like, okay, I feel like using these two, when I add this steep into like the last few minutes of my boil, just to make sure that it's sterilized, is going to drop the pH a little bit, like not a ton, but how I adjusted for that Was when i was making my water profile with just the maris otter and the flaked barley was i made the like i kept the ph a little bit higher than i normally would so i think i was around like five six and you know was like okay this is going to be a little more a little little bit higher than i would normally do for my for my mash ph but i also know that i'm going to be adding in this very acidic kind of water which is also why i use the alkaline water um, I did like a side by side with distilled water and alkaline water and just the flavor of the roasted malts in the alkaline water was so much better than what was in the distilled water.
1: But I knew that
0: I would I would be lowering the pH. So I wanted yeah. to make sure yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah. hash pH was still a little bit higher, like it's still going to get everything done. But then when I add this other water in at the end of my boil, I'm not like suddenly dropping the pH really far. That's cool. Yeah, thanks. I (laughs) So, yeah, I think that, um, you know, we, I I will just quickly say with the different kinds of mashing regimens, single infusion, step, decoction, cereal, and turbid, those are going to be your main, like the main mash methods. We did an entire episode on that. So if you want to learn more about each of those, go back and listen to that. And Um, if you
1: only use single infusion
0: forever, it's going to be fine. Right, which is my mo- yeah. like traditionally that's most yeah. English brewers use single yeah. infusion. That's a hallmark of single or a hallmark of English beers is a single infusion. Um things like you know, Belgian beers, German beers traditionally use decoction mashing. And it was just a matter of what was available. You know, what, yeah. what if if you couldn't modify your barley as well, then you needed to do a step mash, or if you were doing something like a lambic, then you would be doing a turban mash. But yeah, English brewing traditionally has always been just single infusion and that's that's one of the hallmarks of it which is also why a lot of American brewing is also just a single infusion. Makes sense. But yeah, we've episode. got we've got listen, we've got our hands in so <laughs> many episodes that we've done and it is we've we've talked about this in the last episode where it's like we haven't just done a basic episode yeah on some of this stuff and you know it's like we we ran before we walked so now we're we're walking um yeah sorry about that guys I guess yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it's also good because you know you you can learn each episode stands on its own and then it helps you kind of tie everything together because believe me if we had started this podcast out with like beer has four ingredients and you would be one is malt episode two is hops yeah people would be like we had to come out strong <laughs> we that's had to earn your strong, trust. But at least different. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? I don't remember. <laughs> yes. So that is milling and mashing. So now we've gone from the field almost to the glass. Almost. But in our next episode, we will be talking about malt certificates of analysis and how to read those. And like Rachel said, you know, if you've got something that's kind of high protein, how to look at that COA. And figure out how you might need to adjust your brewing process um so that will be our next episode malt uh, on keep calm and malt on i literally have a shirt with that on it me too i was looking at it yesterday it's a bsg okay. shirt yeah. oh, okay see i have one from blacklands malt
1: says oh keep calm well and malt on. i mean very popular
0: saying thank you everyone for listening the great thing about doing this is a podcast episode is that we don't have to worry about some guy in like khaki shorts and a belt coming up to us at a social event putting his hands on his hips and oh that would totally happen who decided we were qualified to talk about uh milling and mashing because neither one of us had done this one
1: thing known as malt conditioning before. me motherfucker. <laughs> that's who <laughs> that what was actually I said that <laughs> I don't need your, well, actually, but I love your, your comments, especially when you tell us how much you love us. That's always right. a great time. Always <laughs> a great time.
0: That kind of feedback yeah. is always welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find us if you want to on social media <laughs> at False Girls. You can email us at falsebottomgirls at gmail.com. And you can visit our website, falsebottomgirls.com. This has been False Bottom Girls. And we make the Bruin world go round.